This is the Birth Uprising Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah, a chiropractor and birth educator, and I'm here with my co-host Emily, a preconception coach and doula. We want to help you to think more critically about what you've been told is necessary and normal during pregnancy and birth, and to discover all the options you weren't told in your seven-minute OB appointments. All right, welcome back to the Birth Uprising podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah, and we have a special guest today, Sally Ann Beresford. She is from England. She is a doula of over 22 years. She has a birth education course. She's written two best-selling books. We're going to have a lot to talk about today. Thank you for being here, Sally Ann. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. I'm loving it so far. You're doing such a great job, both of you. Thank you so much. So why don't you tell us, I, I gave you a little intro, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got into this work? Sure. Um, so I'm a doula in the UK. I am also an antenatal teacher, birth educator, and I've written uh, two books and have my own podcast, as you've said. And um, I started, I think like most people do in the beginning, by having a particular type of birth experience myself, realizing that things could be better and going on and achieving that dream birth that I wanted to have achieved with the first baby but didn't quite manage and recognizing that I could help and support other people to, you know, also go on to achieve their dream birth. So I started off by being a volunteer in the maternity services. And as you may know, in the UK, we have the NHS. So most maternity services are free. Um, but I went outside of the NHS and actually hired an independent midwife for my second birth. So I felt strongly that people shouldn't have to pay if they didn't want to. And I went into the NHS and tried to, as a volunteer, help shape maternity services. And I didn't get very far. Mm. Um, a friend of mine in the US became a doula, told me what they were and how a doula can be uh, an independent supporter of someone who wants to have a baby a particular way. And I thought that that's for me. Um, so 22 years ago, I launched my business, trained and ended up kind of going on to have more children, two more in fact, during those early days as a doula. Um, and then thought, you know, I am, I am helping one birth at a time, but I want to do more than one birth at a time now. I want to help more and more and more people. So as the years went by, I increased my training, became a birth educator. And then eventually decided to write books about how to have the birth of your dreams. And the first one I started uh, in order to help put all the knowledge and information out there that I could about what it's like to be a birth partner. And so I wrote it for birth partners. I wrote it for them because to me, the best way to support someone else in labor is to you know, give them the right level of information that you know that you can help that person, that pregnant woman or person to have the best birth possible. So I wanted all my attention to go into anyone that was helping in that birth room. And so I said, this book isn't for um, 
just birth partners. It's for mothers, mother-in-laws, sisters, aunts, friends, anyone that is around that pregnant woman or person, including doctors, midwives, whoever. I want them to know what support looks like, what the right level of support looks like. And so that was great. And I love that book and I'm so proud of it. And it does ever so well. But then I really wanted to speak to her or them um, and really get into their thoughts and see, right, okay, what, what is your dream birth? What, what does your birth preferences look like to you? And what else can I help you do that can bridge the gap between the antenatal information that you've already learned, either via social media, via other books, podcasts, or perhaps an antenatal course that you've taken? And how can I bridge that gap between what you've learned and what actually happens in the birth room? And so that's where my latest book came from, uh, The Art of Giving Birth. And I focused on physiological birth first and foremost, because for me, a little bit like the difference between breastfeeding and bottle feeding, you know what, there aren't instructions for um, breastfeeding out there written in simple form, but there is for bottle feeding. It's all on the packet. You know, you can see it quite clearly. And that was the thing about physiological birth for me is that if you, if you're, if you're really wanting to have an untouched, unhurried, undisturbed birth experience, there's much more to learn. Um, so that's that's me in a nutshell, really. The past 22 years have flown by. <laughs> and, uh, you know, here I am. I've got a podcast of my own again, just like you, trying to get out there to as many people as possible, trying to help support them, people who may not be able to afford a doula, people who may not want to have someone else at their birth with them. Perhaps they just want that little bit more confidence in their body Perhaps they just want a little bit more awareness of what their rights are. Um, and those are the things that I decided to focus on, really. Well, I love it. I love all of it because I feel like you adding all of these different things that you can do is it is helping more people because even if it's the same information, if it's in multiple different places and people can access it in multiple different ways, that's super helpful because someone, yeah. like you said, someone might not have the money for a doula, but they might have the money for a book. Or maybe they don't have the money for a book, but they can listen to an episode on your podcast. There are just so many ways that you can get the information out there. And I, I especially liked your story of how you started volunteering in the maternity ward because yeah, I think people start out like that. They just want to help and they think, you know, it's not so great the experience some people are having there and maybe I can support them or help them to make better decisions for themselves or you know maybe educate some of the staff and I I experienced this as well with people saying well why don't you become a midwife well why don't you get into the system and change it from the inside and those people have no idea what they're talking about because it sounds like a good idea but you're one person sadly against an industry, at least in the U.S., that's billions of dollars and has been done a certain way forever. And for you as one person to go in there and make a difference, you'd spend your entire life 
and probably not make a difference. But by doing what you decided to do and realizing how you could be more helpful, you are making a difference for so many different people because you're changing their mindset. You're giving them more information to make the right choices for them, even if it's not something that their doctor or midwife told them about. Now they know they have more choices. They probably have a little more confidence and they're more likely to have a better experience overall. So Absolutely. I'm very appreciative of all, all of that. So today we decided we're going to talk about, we're going to focus on the, basically the, the premise of your second book. So mm-hmm. you have five key principles to having a physiological birth. Can you elaborate on that and tell us why you decided on those five things and what they are? Absolutely. I mean, there was quite a few things that I could think of when I made my list. But to be honest, these top five, they just spoke volumes to me. I couldn't have I couldn't have put anything else in there that I thought would be uh, any more appropriate. And the first key principle is to understand your hormones. And I say this because if you don't get hormones, you won't get birth, especially physiological birth. Understanding the role that hormones play is essential. And I feel like most antenatal education doesn't really get this right. They, of course, talk about oxytocin and adrenaline. They, of course, cover that in what most people might consider great detail. But honestly, if you don't attend births on a regular basis, you're not giving them enough information. And because I see birth weekly, I, over the last um, 22 years, have really recognised how important hormones are. I was lucky enough to do my doula training with Michel Odant, the famous French obstetrician. And you know what? He taught me everything I needed to know in those three days. I, I sat in his partner's living room um, I got a headache at the end of every day because I had to retranslate his English into English because his accent is so strong. But he talks about the power of oxytocin and the power of hormones in such great detail that I left that course with everything I needed to become the doula I am today. And really not very much has changed I've witnessed many, many other doulas come and go. They've embarked on the journey. They've done it for a little while and they've left because they didn't feel that they made a difference. And it was 15 years before one of my clients ended up with a cesarean section. And I honestly believe that that was the case because of my understanding of hormones and how they work and what you should be encouraging laboring women to do in those early stages of labor and even now in 2023 I witness um, posts on social media of advice and information regarding how to do certain things in early labor and I honestly want to shout and scream and say no you can't underestimate what that early stage is like and so for me that was one of the foundations of the book and it had to go at the front understanding how to navigate early labor in order to make sure the rest of your labor goes as smoothly as possible 
and hormones was the crux of that for me. So the first um, part of the book is about understanding hormones and for me to explain why that is so important. So number two is to trust your instincts. Now, I think that's tricky for most people, even though there will have been many times throughout their lives where they have tuned into their gut instincts, they will have automatically recognized that there was something a little bit off, a little bit odd, and they weren't sure whether to think about trusting their head or their gut. Inevitably, they will still have acknowledged that they had this thought, that they had this instinct within them. And yet when it comes to becoming pregnant and carrying a baby and giving birth and becoming a parent, a lot of people don't trust their instincts. They don't really recognize what their gut instinct is for, what it feels like to them and how they can tune into it. And as I say, and many other birth keepers, doulas in this world will say, it's your greatest superpower. And without leaning into that trust and tuning into your innate wisdom, you're letting yourself down, I think. You're letting yourself miss part of the process that you're going to really need to rely on as a parent, I feel. Um, you know, understanding what your instincts are for, what, what, what role they play and how they came about, going back to the idea that, you know, we are built to procreate. Whether we choose to or not is completely our choice. You don't have to have children. You can have as many or as little. Perhaps you are struggling to have a child and you might think, oh, that's rubbish. You know, I don't, I don't believe that's the case. But actually, there are for most of us, it, you know, it is it is the 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 case that we are um, built to do that and to survive and to keep going as a as a species and and to help our children to thrive. And so, this chapter really focuses on that in so many different ways, going into how um, we can rid ourselves of any doubt that this is our that this is our journey. Um, and really making sure that you are confident in your instincts by the time you're ready to give birth. Because like I say, this book really bridges the gap between what you already know and how you can sit confidently across from your care provider and say, yes, please, or no, thank you to whatever it is that they might be recommending to you. So without the ability to trust your instinct, you might falter at that stage you might your birth might be sabotaged your preferences to have a physiological birth might end up not coming to to fruition because you've actually squashed down your instincts and that would be a real shame well I think that's a really important point because like you said so many people just don't they don't know how to trust that even though they've felt it before. So maybe this will kind of iron it out a bit for them. And I think I've talked about this in multiple different episodes as well about how we're all conditioned from the time we're little kids to outsource our our power and our knowledge to somebody else who knows better, whether that be a parent or a teacher or a doctor. And then we get into the time when we're having our babies 
And we've seen what everyone else has done. We've seen the movies. We've, you know, watched these videos. We've heard horror stories. And then this person tells you what you need to do. And you just hold up your hands and say, you know, I'm not the expert on this. And sometimes women do recognize that, that, you know, this doesn't feel right for me. I don't feel like I need this test. I don't want to be induced or whatever it is that's being suggested to them. But they also don't know whether that's in their best interest or they should just listen to this person. So really honing in on your intuition while you're pregnant or before you're pregnant really would be better. But while you're pregnant, so that when you get to the birth, you know, and during your pregnancy, when it comes to all the the testing, I don't know how it is in the UK, but here it's everybody gets the same tests at the same stage for the duration of their pregnancy. And it's so much testing. And mm. most people don't need all of it. But if you aren't listening to your intuition saying, you know, why do I need a seventh ultrasound? <laughs> You know, and you're just going with what they are suggesting. They're probably not thinking about you as an individual, just what's easiest or more profitable for them. And so, yeah, I think that's a really important uh, chapter to have in there. I think it's it's also important for friends and family, because obviously, you know, it's one thing having the care providers on your back. And like you say, ending up on this spiral of routine appointments and scans and everything etc but when you've also got your family perhaps your partner isn't really on board with your preferences perhaps there's other people in your life that are trying to influence you coming back to your instincts every time is so essential because you have to shut out the noise and override the um, recommendations and you know, other people wanting to validate their decisions to you and say, oh, well, I did it this way. You should too. You know, oh, you're not you're not going to be able to do this without an epidural or you're not going to be able to do this without blah, blah, blah. And it's so, so important to keep coming back to what am I feeling? What am I thinking? What's right for me rather than you know, just because your friend had an induction or your friend wanted this or your friend said you should do that, that that's what you should have. Right. Good point. There's, I get messages all the time. Just the other day, I made a reel about it, how, you know, probably well-meaning friends and family will hear that you have something in mind for your birth, like you don't want an epidural or you're going to be at home. And they try to pressure you to do things their way because of their fear and their lack of understanding of the topic. And these women write to me and say, what do I, you know, how, how do I make it stop? What do I say? I don't want them to get in my head. I've already made my choice. And that really comes down to, for me, just creating a boundary there, which can be hard if you've never had to do that. But it's good practice for when you're going to be a parent because you will have to create boundaries both for your kids and around your kids if you want to be making the decisions for them and not having other people do that. So you can always say, you know, this is my decision. I have thought about it. This is what's right for me and right for my family. And I won't talk about it anymore. And then if they won't respect that, you don't have to talk to them during that period or really, I mean, ever. But if you don't want to talk to them until your baby's born, because you want to avoid 
having to continue to have this conversation and it causing you anxiety and uh, confusing you, then you can create that boundary. So, I mean, if everybody would listen a little bit more to their intuition, you know, partners, friends, family included, it wouldn't be such a conversation for people, I don't think. I agree. And that leads really nicely into the third key principle, which is to prepare your birth partner. And again, you know, birth partner could be mother, sister, friend, like whomever, whoever is in your space as a pregnant woman or person, you know, being able to acknowledge what their fears, thoughts, concerns are and decide what to take on board, what to work through, how to navigate their you know, feelings around your pregnancy and birth choices is is important. And that's why the, the third principle is to prepare your birth partner and in theory, anyone else that may be around you. Because as I always say, your birth partner can literally make or break your birth experience, which is why I wrote the first book, Labour of Love, because I really wanted to ensure that anyone is that is in that birth room with her or them is is completely on board with their choices, is completely on board and understands her why. Because if you get her why, then she will never make bad decisions for her or her baby. If you understand it and you support it, then it will always help her to tune into her instincts. If, however, you back her into a corner, then her instincts can be diminished because she's so busy trying to, you know, fight off the, 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 the fear that you're putting on her, the, the sabotage, the, the, the coercion, the whatever it is that she's hearing, experiencing, feeling. If she's backed into a corner, then things might be different. Whereas if you just give time, space, respect, and the ability to talk through her reasons, her feelings, everything about her options, her choices, her decisions that she's, you know, coming to, then she'll never make a bad one. And she'll, like I say, never put herself or her baby in danger. Um, So preparing the birth partner is essential. And I have um, some really useful tools in this chapter, which are um, some of them are lifted from the the first book because I couldn't not have the woman read the tools that are so useful for birth partners because she also needs to understand the role of a birth partner. If she doesn't understand it, then she can't let her birth partner be the true partner they need or deserve to be. And once they understand her why assuming that is a physiological birth in this example, then they will have to have really taken on board the role of hormones, the role her instincts play, how the body works, and really recognise that actually being, not doing, is the best way to be a birth partner. To sit quietly and hold space is far better than trying to jump up and do lots and lots of things, you know. I think that... um, that's the crucial part is to actually understand that less is more. Um, and it's taken a whole chapter to describe that, to get that across. But a lot of women think they're let down by their partners if their partners maybe don't say or do much. 
But once they understand that's better for them in a physiological birth, then they can let their birth partner be the birth partner that they need, in fact, to help produce more oxytocin and to reduce adrenaline and to keep them in the space that they have said that they've wanted. Um, And the other thing that I talk in detail about in this chapter is the use of a safety word. Because I don't know if you've heard of this before, I'm sure most people have, but I've been using it for decades. And personally, I wouldn't go into a birth without talking to my clients about the use of a safety word. And if they're happy to have one, it gives me full permission to let them vocalize as much as they want in their birth experience. So if you've got someone who's looking you straight in the eye and saying, I can't do this anymore, I don't want to do this anymore, help me, then I can confidently look at them and say, you're doing great. And know that I'm not letting them down by not getting help or support. Because if they have changed their mind and their plan A now is going to turn into plan B, they can use their safety word and say, okay, I need you to listen now. I'm safety wording you. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get out the pool. I want to transfer in or I want to go to the labor ward and I want to have an epidural or I want to have a cesarean section or I want to have something other than what I'm having or experiencing or feeling right now. Um, Some will choose not to use a safety word and will say, no, if I say I'm done, I'm done and you need to listen the first time. And that's fine. But on the whole, most women just want to vocalize and birth partners tend, tend to want to fix that. And women don't want them to fix it for them. They want to just be able to vocalize and say, this is tough, but I'm okay. And because you're close by and because you're there with comfort measures and all sorts of other things that can support them in that moment, then chances are once they've got it off their chest, they will carry on and get through the labor and all will be well. But you have that tool just in case you need it. And for the woman herself to understand, that that tool is there for them to utilize if they choose to, can be such a release, can be such a good thing for them to be able to say, I can say as many times as I want how hard I'm finding this and no one will rescue me unless I ask them to. I think that's smart. I've been in that position before. When you get to where it's really hard, And you just, I've said those words, I just don't want to do this anymore because it can be really exhausting and you just want it to be done. But to know that you can say that and have somebody else support you and also remind you that probably means this is almost over. You know, if it gets to the point where you say, you know, and some people do transfer in here in the U.S. too, if one of the main reasons is pain relief. If they decide that they need some pain relief, they can, but that's a really good way for them to tell you the difference in in what they're feeling. Like, no, I'm really sure I got to get, I got to get out of here. I'm done with this. I need, I need something more than can be provided to me in this space, or I just need to talk through how hard this is because it's hard and I'm having a hard time. So I think that's really smart. Well, and, and to your point about educating anybody that's in that space. That's one of the tricky things, I think, about going to the hospital 
I'm not sure if it's set up exactly the same way as it is here in the U.S., but here in the U.S., you if you go see an OB, say, you likely are seeing somebody who works in a practice of many. So, you mm-hmm. you know, between like four and 20 people. And during your prenatal care, you rotate through those people. So you get to know, that's in air quotes, each of them, which means nothing. Because you could have seen this person one time for an average of seven minutes before you give birth. If they end up being the one that shows up at your birth, you, you also can't predict that. So you don't know these people well. And then when you get to the hospital, the people who are really there with you and really attending you are the nurses. And you have absolutely no way of knowing who is going to show up. You can't have met these people before. So they know nothing about you, nothing about your preferences. They don't, they probably haven't read this book. They, you know, just do the same thing with everyone. And you can get a really great supportive nurse who's done her own extra work to understand some of this stuff. Or you can get somebody who's been, you know, working there for 40 years and wants to do the same thing with everyone that they did 40 years ago. And there's no way of knowing. So the more control you can have over your space, the more control you can have over the people that are going to be in that space as far as who you allow in and what they know and how they're going to support you, the more likely you are to succeed in having the birth that you want. Absolutely. And I think that for some people, reading this chapter and looking at what the role of a birth partner is, some people will actually come to the realization that they need to choose a different partner than the one they may have invited to their birth in the first place. And usually that's the spouse. And for some people, they're like, actually, I think you'd be really not the best person to have with me. And they have to look and revise their decision or perhaps consider hiring a doula or birth keeper to join the team in order to get the right level of support that they need. I certainly have have been at quite a lot of births in the last, well, three years, particularly with COVID, where clients have chosen a doula, me, over their partner because they could only take one in. Um, But since then, also, I've been at births since two partners are allowed in. I've been at births where the birth partner was me and the the spouse was asked not to attend because they were deemed to be um, not suitable for the role. (laughs) Yeah, well, I can understand that. I mean, I know my husband, for example, knows, I mean, knows more now because I talk about birth and he's seen me give birth multiple times now, but he knew nothing. And Sometimes, especially men, I think, have this barrier built up over the course of their lives to do stuff like this. And they're just not the best at understanding it and not necessarily uh, is it easy for them to understand how to be the most supportive in that time. Whereas somebody who's chosen this as their career, who's trained in this, who's probably given birth before, who maybe if you're going to the hospital, has been to that hospital, understands, you know, the protocols and the procedures and knows a little bit more about how to give you the support you want. I can see Mm -hmm. how you might choose that person over your partner. I do think it was really crappy what happened to people in the last few years. And and we're going to be discussing that more in the future, too, because it was like people weren't traumatized enough already. Now you're making them go to all their appointments by themselves. You're making them 
sometimes birth by themselves without any support at all, um, or at least mm-hmm. just one person. So you had to choose, do I want this support person who I've paid for and gotten to know and really trust, or maybe the father of my baby? I mean, that's just really crappy to, to make people choose yeah. that. And I know a lot of bad things happen to people in, in that period of time. I was thankful. I had a baby at the end of 2020. And I was thankful that I was home because it was no different for me than it would have been any other time. My family was allowed. It was my own home. My appointments were exactly the same as they would have been. There was no difference for me. But for so many other people, there was a huge difference. Did you? So do you do mostly home births or do you attend any births in the hospital? I'll do anything a client wants. I don't mind how she gives birth, where she gives birth. I want to 100% support her philosophies around birth. Um, I would say maybe 30% are home births, but the rest are all hospital births. Um, So, yeah, I I have a wide variety of different, you know, every... Uh, every year there's about maybe five that give birth by cesarean section, which I love to attend and make as beautiful an experience as I can. And honestly, the um, the most important thing is that it's a positive, empowered experience for them. And yeah, I go to anything really. But I think that's one of the reasons why I focus so much on physiological birth in you know this this book, because I do think that when you are planning something like a C-section or as I would call abdominal birth, you get so much help and support. You know, you get so much. I mean, the the, the, the people in theatre are so used to it. They're so comfortable. They feel so able to give you all the love and support you need that I know that when clients go into theatre, they having a planned C-section particularly, I think I'm talking about here, is that they, they're like, oh, that was amazing. That was so brilliant. Everyone was so lovely, so kind. And, you know, that just isn't the case with physiological birth. So few care providers are comfortable with that birth experience and helping to support that, that woman or person's experience. That, you know, it's just so, so hard, isn't it, to, to compare the difference. But yes, I'm, I'm you know, 100% there for them wherever they want to go. I think in the hospital, they're just, they don't understand it. That's not what they were taught. They were taught to do surgery, you know, so they're comfortable with that procedure and being in control in that way. And then sitting on your hands and letting this person give birth is foreign to, they want to jump in and they want to do stuff. You know, they want to speed it up or uh, decrease the woman's pain or whatever it is. And they just don't know how to not. So... I can see how that would be the case that they'd be more comfortable with a C-section mm-hmm. and with the support there than if you have none of that. And I think that's really important to know that there are cases where women need C-sections for various reasons. It's a really small percentage of the amount of women who have them, but There are reasons why it would be the best choice. And if you already know that that's the best choice for you, it's going to be the safest for you and your baby to know that you have someone supporting you who knows how to make this less bad, who knows Mm -hmm. how to, you know, advocate for the things that are going to make you feel more comfortable, 
to make you feel like you birthed this baby, even though someone else was doing a surgery on you. I know a lot of women, you know, myself included, my first was a C-section that I didn't need. I didn't feel like I gave birth to him. I felt like he was removed from me. And so, but I didn't have my doula there. She had already left. And to be able to have somebody there who could have known some of these ways to make it feel more like I gave birth and to make it feel more like, you know, I should be uh, feeling accomplished of all the work I did up to that point and to help me get to know my new baby. That is really important. I think so many women who have a C-section leave the hospital and feel like they don't know what just happened to them. They feel like everybody else was in control but them. And knowing those things and having that support really, really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And that's nicely leading on to the fourth key principle, which is to know your rights. I think that so few women or people understand that hospital is you know, a place that you go to, but but their guidelines, their policies, they're not law. You're not in jail when you enter a hospital. You The doors aren't locked. You, you know, you can decide what happens to you. You get to decide what happens to your body. And as much as it might sound easy for those words to roll off of my lips, I do know that so few understand that they can say no or... um and decline interventions that are told to them have to be done. And so I really wanted to make sure that this chapter, which I think is the biggest chapter in the book, is was thorough in its ways of explaining what you can accept or decline and why. Um, ensuring that you understand that, you know, you can put really clear boundaries in place about what happens to you. And how important it is to practice saying no in pregnancy so that when you go into a a situation where no is is needed, you can say it confidently or you've really prepared your birth partner or you've hired a doula and you've made it very clear to your care providers that your doula is there to speak on your behalf and they are to respect the fact that you've chosen for the doula to speak on your behalf, because if that's documented and clearly stated, then, you know, that that will be a little bit easier when it comes to the doula actually advocating for you, if that is what you've chosen. Um, and that really helps you, like you've said, about keeping in control. And it brings up examples of, again, COVID times where, you know, clients of mine were told when you arrive in hospital, your partner will be expected to wait in in the car until you're deemed to be in established labor. Well, of course, the only way they would deem that is to do a vaginal examination. Well, most of my clients were never going to have a vaginal examination. So we, as a team, would write to or speak to or arrange a meeting with the care providers in that hospital and say, this is something my client is declining. She's not going to have a vaginal examination. So we need to establish a way of ensuring that it is well documented upon arrival in labor that the partner or the doula or both who whoever, in the, depending on what month of the three years we're talking about, um, will be coming in with her because she's not going to be pressurized 
into having a vaginal examination just so that you can say whether or not the partner stays in the car or can come in. And understanding your rights, understanding how to ensure that these things are spoken about, documented, put in place, whatever. I know that it might be different, you know, in different countries, and it's not even just the US to the UK. I mean, you know, however you live, whatever country, whatever, you know, policies your hospital has, if you understand them in advance of that birth, you'll know whether you need to transfer to a different hospital, a different care provider, a different means of care, whether you choose to end up free birthing or, you know, having like whatever it is that you decide you need to do differently. If they show you their true colours immediately, you'll know your rights and you'll know how to make sure that on the day you, you've made decisions that support your philosophies of birth, your preferences, and not end up being um, bullied or coerced into accepting interventions that your care provider wants you to have just because they say that's what you should. If you're clear on your no, you've put your boundaries in, it's not happening unless you change your mind. Totally agree. It's one of the main reasons that I, I had my Instagram account or that I started it because women don't know what options are available to them. They don't know that they can say no. They don't know that these things aren't laws, but they just don't know what they don't know. And so yeah. I think having the education behind you through books, podcasts, Instagram accounts, anywhere you're getting the information to realize that you do have these different options, then you can think a little bit more critically about what's being offered to you and you can ask more questions mm -hmm. and then you can do exactly what you just said. You can figure out if these people are for you or not. Are you in the right place or is this bad? If we're already showing our true colors during our prenatal appointment on how I asked for an alternative for the glucose screen and you lost your mind on me or told me that that's not an option. You have to do this or, you know, really acted like I was a problem. What's it going to be like when you're at my birth? It's probably going to be the same, but worse. So to be able to know what you don't know through all these avenues and then ask those questions. I have been writing a book myself for, I don't know, way too long. It's coming out this year, I swear. <laughs> it's it's a workbook on exactly this. It's I realize there's so many women that don't understand what's going to be offered to them during their prenatal care appointments. And it's pretty standard person to person. So if you knew going into your appointments, what tests were going to be offered, what they're going to want to do, what they might talk about, and you can prepare ahead of time for that then you feel like yeah. you're in control. You already know this stuff. You're going to this appointment. It's not a surprise. You know, they're not going to just say, oh, we're taking blood today or oh, you're having an ultrasound today because you knew. And the workbook has, it's a whole bunch of questions for you to ask yourself, your partner, your care provider, the internet, whoever you want to determine if these things are right for you so that you feel confident when you go into those appointments, knowing that you've, you've done the back work. And then you can see how do these people react? Am I in the right place? Are they supportive of me asking questions or do I seem like a burden? Do they say that they'll do an alternative for X, Y, and Z? Or is that just not what we do here? Or what if I refuse? 
You know, what are they what are they going to say to that? Because then you get to the hospital if you're going to the hospital and they want to do a vaginal exam and you might not be ready to say no or they might push back if you say no. And if you know that that's kind of what's going to happen because they did that in your prenatal care anyway, you're ready or you've already found someone new. So you don't have to put up with that. Exactly. I've created something similar, not the same at all, but a journal to accompany the book in order to explore your feelings about, you know, what do you think you would be able to say or do on how you feel about certain things? Because, you know, some women are able to say some things, but not, no doesn't come easily to them. And I made a post on Instagram about this the other day. If you can't say no, How about saying not right now? Because if you're in a situation where you're being invited to have, I say invited, but you know what I mean, um, you're being offered a vaginal examination upon arrival at the hospital and you've said all through your pregnancy, I'm not having vaginal examinations, I'm not going to have a vaginal examination unless I want one. If you get there and even as you're walking into the main door of the hospital itself and your your doula is like, how are you feeling about that now? And you're like, no, I'm definitely not having one. And you get in there and the person caring for you is really convincing that this is essential. Many people can struggle to say no to that person. And in that situation, if it doesn't feel comfortable for you to say no, then what about saying not right now? What about saying, I'm, I'm, I'm really not going to have that at this point, but I will let you know when I change my mind. I will have one, you know, perhaps have one at some point, but I'll, I'll let you know. Because that for some people feels less confronting. And I wanted people to discover that in the pregnancy. I wanted them to have a safe place that they could write down what that felt like for them. Were they the kind of person that could really be honest with themselves and say, I think this might be hard for me, so I'm going to think of alternative ways? Because some will confidently say, no, stop, don't do that to me. Some will find their voice very easily but a lot of people won't. So identifying your personality style for me was really quite important um, because I find myself, I mean, I'm 52 now, but when I was in my 20s and 30s and I was pregnant and having children, I would not have said anything like, no, stop, don't. I would not have had that ability at all, which is why I feel perhaps my first birth didn't go well And I went down the independent route with my subsequent birth and stayed at home to prevent myself having to put, be in that situation. I didn't want to be in a situation whereby someone had the ability to overpower me and I lacked confidence in myself. So I wouldn't have been able to step up in a vulnerable situation such as labor and birth. And there weren't doulas then. So it wasn't as if I had the option to, um, you know, hire someone to be a a vocal advocate on my behalf if I needed them. And I wouldn't have had the words to explain to my husband what I needed from them. Again, probably why I wrote the first book, Labour of Love, to be able to 
empower partners to be the best partners that they could be because to me that was the part that I really felt was needed the most for me because I was so shy and so quiet I know it doesn't seem like it now but <laughs> I've um I've come a long way in, in the last two decades mm-hmm. oh I'm the same and I totally I totally get that people can be really convincing even if you think you are solid in your choice, I mean, my first birth is a great example of that where, you know, I'm a chiropractor. I've spent my whole life caring about natural health. I wanted to be home, but kind of deferred to the hospital setting because my husband and I had just started our practice. We didn't have a lot of money. It was right down the street, covered by our insurance. And I was like, how bad could it be? You know, all the, all the while knowing <laughs> in the back of my head, very bad. It could be. Very, no, no, no. It'll be fine. So I went and definitely agreed to stuff that I didn't want. Even if I had said no multiple times, I got broken down to agree to these things because I just wanted people to shut up, you know? And that Mm -hmm. can be another reason you agree to stuff too, is if you're made to feel uncomfortable in the situation and you know, okay, if I do, if I let them do this vaginal exam, they'll just leave me alone for a while. You might agree to yeah. it to make the situation better at that time. and But for a lot mm-hmm. of people, it is really hard to just flat out say no, you know, in all areas of their life, not, not just this one, but it is good practice. I feel like saying not right now or maybe later or trying to push it off is kind of like when your kids want something and you say, you know, we'll see, we'll see, maybe later. Maybe, you know, yeah. we'll talk about it later. And you kind of push it off and push it off till they forget about it. And then it's bedtime. <laughs> kind of hoping that that's what's going to happen here is if I, I bought myself some time. And if I buy myself this time, maybe they'll leave me alone or maybe it won't be necessary to them, uh, you know, in an hour or two hours. Maybe my baby will be here and they can just, you know, it's, it's a non-issue anymore. So I think mm-hmm. that's a really good idea, too. If you can at least get them to put it off. I've also heard people say, can, can we have some time to talk about it? Just me and my partner, me and my doula, some space. Can we, you know, they, yeah. want, it, they want me to go to the next level, have an epidural, break my water, have a C-section. Can we have some time? Or even if you're not religious, but if you are, you know, this obviously applies. We'd like to pray on it. Can you give us some space? Yeah. So either way, even if you're not religious and you're actually not going to pray, they're going to give you that space. Or you could actually pray yeah, on absolutely. it if you are religious, you know, to, to buy you that time, um, but also to to push it off so that ho- hopefully hopefully they'll just leave you alone. But I think that's a really that's a really good point. I actually wrote in the book a little bit about Stockholm syndrome, which it sounds like a really um, kind of serious thing to talk about. But I feel like this is so important is that. Um, So many people are scared to go against what their care provider is saying um, because they're worried that they will be harmed by the care provider, that they want to, in the end, befriend them to eliminate any potential trauma that comes. And I feel like they come up with these ideas because, of course, so many of their friends are telling of the horrendous birth stories that they're experiencing. So... In the end, when they enter the, the, the space where they're going to give birth, they end up befriending the care provider for all the wrong reasons. And I actually had a conversation with somebody recently who said that's exactly what happened to her and that she was um, 
she was being so nice to the to the midwife that was caring for her because she was so concerned that this midwife wouldn't wouldn't provide her with um the right level of care and i feel that's so sad but ultimately um understanding that and recognizing it for what it is might actually help you not to end up in that scenario because so many people come out of their birth experiences saying i can't believe i let them do that to me why did i let that happen when i knew better and that's the part that i really want to stop i really want people to not come out the other side of their birth journey and look back and say how could i have let that be my story how could i have have allowed that you know at the end of the day it is your body it is your right to say no and you will only have this birth once you may go on to have many many more children but you'll only have this birth once and your responsibility is to make it the best birth that you can for you and your baby so understanding that and working through the five key principles to me was the most important part for people to understand is to come out the other side of your birth experience maybe saying I did have intervention but I knew why I was choosing to accept it and at what point it happened was me saying that this is what I want now and consenting to that for the right reasons. That's another reason why I have my account is I feel like you like you just said so many women feel like things were done to them or they agreed to things to kind of keep the peace in the situation or keep the peace with that particular provider and I do get why someone would do that both from the standpoint of I want them to like me because we're just used to that as women wanting people to like us we don't want to seem bossy or too much we want to keep the peace in those appointments and at our birth. But also sometimes they are, uh, providers can be, I don't know, they, they do sometimes do things that they wouldn't do if you were agreeable. They make things a little bit harder. They're a little bit rougher. They're a little bit um, less lenient or kind. Because they are people, and if they're the kind of person that gets mad when someone tells them no or makes their job harder, it's possible. So I do get that as well, but I really hope that people can recognize that before they get into their birth so they're not in a situation like that because that's, that's, it's just a really bad place to be. You know, I've, I've done it my whole life too where I think, like you, as I've gotten older, I've cared a lot less. <laughs> what people think. And because at the end of the day, it is your birth. And it's not just that day. What happens to you that day or two days or however long it takes will affect you forever. And not just from the standpoint of, you know, remembering your birth, but it can change you. Like for me, it, my first birth, I was a really confident person. And after my first birth, I was like a shell of myself for multiple years until I free birthed my second son and was like, that's what I needed. I needed to know that I could have done this, that I'm not broken, that it was them and not me. And, yeah. you know, that's a really hard place to be in because it can affect your parenting. It can affect your relationships. It can affect your work. 
It can affect all kinds mm-hmm. of things. So it's not what happens to you that day doesn't stay there. It travels with you. And so yeah. making sure that you have the best likelihood of that being a good experience and having that support the first time. You know, so many women I talk to are like me, had a bad experience, and then we're like, oh, now I see where this went wrong. Now I see where I should have stood up for myself or how I should have had this support or I've been at a different place. And now I know not to agree to X, Y, and Z. And now I know that I need to do it differently the next time. But like I said before, you don't know what you don't know. People think that it's not a big yeah. deal. That they, Some of them, they think they don't have to plan at all. Which I know. Yeah. is is naive in the sense that I think they're just very trusting. Like, why wouldn't this place, you know, what I'm going to get the best OB. I had a, a friend of a friend maybe like two years ago, had, was pregnant, first baby, and had the best OB nearby. They were traveling to this person, so excited about it, ready to meet their baby. And as the time got closer to the birth, they started talking, making them sign all these forms. And, um, you know, just leading up to, I think this isn't going to go well. And from, from my point of view, because I could see it coming, they ended up getting induced and having a C-section. And I like, like I had a crystal ball, could see it all coming. But if you're someone who just trusts that and trusts that this person has a good reputation and that they're a safe choice, and then you go into it not knowing what you need to know and not not being critical. I think we need to be a little bit more critical of a lot of things, but you know, this particularly plays a role when you go into a system that's that big. If you're going to be at the hospital, you have to recognize that they are out for themselves first and you second. If they can give you a good experience while you're there, that's great. But what really matters to them is efficiency and making money. And if you're getting in the way of that and their normal procedures and protocols and the things that they've all learned in school, it might not work out how you're hoping. Yeah, for sure. Well, that brings me on to the fifth principle, which is to trust your body. And like you said just now, when you believe that your body is broken um, and that you did something wrong and you were the fault, you were the reason why your first baby didn't come out smoothly and easily. For me, this is why I left this chapter till last, because I think you need to know all the other stuff first and then get to the point where you start to really tune in to your body. And I, I think that's why this book might be particularly useful for people who are having subsequent babies, who have had a baby before and may believe that they were the reason that things didn't go well. Because you know what? When the body is in charge, very little goes wrong. It's only when people start meddling and doing things to you and interventions come in that physiological birth changes. And one of the reasons why I actually give away the first chapter of the book for free, because the first chapter of the book focuses on the three different types of birth, physiological birth, managed birth, and abdominal birth. You can't give birth any other way. There's only three ways to give birth. And to me, there's no ifs or buts. Your birth is either physiological, if it's vaginal, or it's managed. There's no in-between. You're either having an unhurried, undisturbed you know, birth with no one doing anything to you 
or you're not. And if it's managed because you've had cervical sweeps, you've had um, vaginal examinations that have interfered with the process in any way, you're having lots of other things happen to you, those change physiology. They change it. And as much as I would love to say, oh, of course your vaginal birth was natural, it wouldn't be physiological. It, you can call it natural or normal if you want to, but for me, the definition is physiological birth or managed. Otherwise, you're having a C-section. And so I give away the first chapter so that people can really um, read that and, and see what they think before they you know, buy the book. Um, and if you want to read the first chapter and the introduction, feel free to uh, go into the link in my bio app in my Instagram account and I'm at the ultimate birth partner or you can access it through my website which is www.birthability.co.uk and once you start to recognize the body's role in giving birth and recognizing how your baby needs to decide when it's ready to be born and then it will um, work really well with your body to be born in, in general and how once you trust your body and you trust the process of birth, you will have the birth of your dreams if physiological birth is the birth of your dreams, purely because you trust the process. You understand how the body works. You understand how the baby nav navigates the pelvis. You understand how every part of you is, is, is working and your baby's, the dance that you do together is working to enable your baby to be born. Um, and of course, if anything shows itself during that process that isn't working out and your instincts kick in and you think actually something's not right, you can, of course, change your mind and have an intervention at any point. It's not to say that you have to stick with physiological birth if that's the decision that you've made. Of course you don't. You can do anything you want at any point. But the most important thing, if you want a physiological birth and you're planning a physiological birth, you have to learn to trust your body. And so for me, bringing that in as the final chapter, there are other chapters. There's a chapter on birth plans and there's a chapter on um, final preparations, which is you know really quite important in, in the latter stages of your pregnancy to prepare for your birth and what you can do in that time. But this fifth principle of learning to trust your body is essential. And if you don't trust your body, to be honest, will sabotage your own birth experience because you won't be able to let go enough. You won't be able to let, I mean, I would say, um, and in fact, in the book, I've quoted my friend Carmen Rocha, who is a birth mindset coach, that birth, giving birth physiologically is 80% mindset and 20% mechanics. If what's going on in your mind doesn't support the mechanics of your body's ability to give birth to your baby, you're kind of already not going to get there if you don't help yourself to trust in the process. So that's the final key principle. I think that's a really good point to kind of round it all out because it is, yeah. I think it's, it's one of the most important things. You know, if you don't trust your body and you don't trust yourself, which kind of we touched on throughout talking today everything else kind of falls apart if you make yeah. your plan but don't trust that you're making the right choice you're just 
making a plan without any back work, without really thinking deeply or discussing it with others, someone can very easily come in and sabotage that plan. Or like you said, you could sabotage that plan if you get into the part where it's really hard and you don't remember what's on the other side. Like I've experienced that as well. I will say with my free birth, I felt that the most strongly. I knew what stages I was in. I trusted myself. There was nobody to say, you can't do this. Or, you know, maybe you should go to the hospital now because my, I was, my husband was with me, but I think I made him go outside. He was folding laundry and then he was working on a patio. I was like, there's nothing you can do for me here. It's all in my head. If I need something, I'll, I'll ask you to make me a sandwich or, you know, whatever it is. But I knew that I had complete trust in my body. I didn't question myself once. I was totally comfortable with the situation, even if I was physically uncomfortable. And I never felt like I needed help or to be saved because I really trusted myself. And there was yeah. nobody else to put anything into my head. You know, if, if more people could trust themselves in general, I think, you know, birth would come so much easier to them and the planning of it. And then parenthood as well. You have to make so many decisions as a parent that, you know, there may be so many different options. Where do they go to school? Who's their doctor? What kind of food do I give them? Do they have a pacifier? Am I going to swaddle them? If you don't feel confident in your choices, then someone else can easily come in and say, oh, you, you know, honey, you need to do this. I swaddled all my kids. Yeah. And, you know, and look at them. You have to, you have to swaddle them. You have to give them a pacifier. But if you decided that those things weren't for you, you know, I appreciate your advice, but we've decided not to do that. You know, exactly. that you can, you can come at it that way. Um, so I think it's really important to be able to, to trust yourself, trust your body, to know that it grew this baby from two tiny cells. You did, you just like were a, a, a on standby here. Just, of course, you fed it and rested and, you know, helped in the process, but you didn't have to do any thinking. It knew exactly what to do to grow it from those two cells yeah. to a whole person. And if you believe that it could do that, but then it wouldn't know how to get it out, it just yeah. seems so <laughs> silly. I mean, all these other yeah. mammals give birth without thinking about it, without issues. And granted, yes, sometimes people do need help. Sometimes animals do need help and there can be issues. But on the general, which is how I always talk, you don't need help. You don't need to be saved. You need support. and. So I think trusting yourself is a good, really good place to start. Amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, for going through these five key principles. These are all things that I talk about all the time. And it's really nice to know that they were all compiled into one space where people can read them, you know, before they're pregnant, during their pregnancy, they're planning another baby and share with their partner or their doula or whoever it is that's going to be supporting them so everybody can be on the same page and they can feel prepared for what they're about to make all these decisions about. So I will make sure that I put links to every place that people can find you and to the books. If you guys would like to read along with me, maybe we can have a book club because I do want to read this. I have a whole stack of all these books and I have a problem with starting the book And then, oh, this other shiny book pops up and starting that book. And so I have, you know, a whole bunch that I've sort of started but haven't finished because I'm just so interested in so many things. It's really hard to hone in. But 
I will make sure that people know where to find it so that they can get a little bit deeper on some of these topics before their babies are here. So thank you again, Sally Ann, for being here. We really appreciate you talking about all these things and we will see you all next week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Birth Uprising podcast. Together, we can create an uprising in the birth world. Don't forget to share and subscribe so you can be notified every time a new episode is released.